Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. <laughs> That's what we're all thinking. I'm not thinking that. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, if life were a musical and you went to go see a musical, would it just be a play? <laughs> you, I don't know what motivated this question, but the minute you said if life were a musical, I was like, suicide, suicide, suicide. And then doubly suicidal that you would then have to go see a musical. <laughs> have to go see a musical. <laughs> yeah, it would. It would uh, it, I, you know, even in TV shows, my favorite kind of TV shows. I think The Wire was like this on purpose. <clears throat> is when the music isn't is 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 part of the background. Um, not even when it's used to get you to emote, because even that is mildly bo- bothers me. Right. <laughs> so you must you might have a problem with our main segment, uh, <laughs> the movie that we'll be discussing, Vertigo, because music plays quite uh, a prominent... Yeah, that's a, yeah no, no. Uh, a, I don't know. I haven't thought, <laughs> I haven't thought too deeply about this. A score, a well-done score, is, is better than a... Um, when like all of a sudden you see like the character all sad and some some emo song is playing, right. like and it's like a little, it's almost almost like a montage of an emotion. Yeah. Um, that that seems artificial to me. A score, uh, the best scores, uh, I think you don't notice them too much. You have to sort of pay attention. And I don't know if that. I mean, I certainly notice the score in Vertigo, but it's very hard to. Like the best score is it's very hard to separate from the movie. It's hard to imagine how that movie could possibly be done without it. I mean, Psycho and Jaws come to mind as as having just one theme that is, you know, that is almost like that. That Jaws sound is almost just what now what a shark sounds like as it's approaching you. Yeah. (laughs) And the knife stabbing. But I feel like you're avoiding my question and the import of the question. If life were a musical... <laughs> and then you went a- to go see a musical in this world, would it just be a play? <laughs> because all it is is doing what life is doing. What? So, so a play in that, since life is a musical, what would be special about it is that there's no music? No, 
Well, oh, a play? Yeah, I wasn't yeah. asking about a play. But yeah, seeing a play would be sort of <laughs> like seeing a musical. People would find it weird that nobody was breaking out into song and dance during, and there were no numbers and they were just talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were just talking. That'd be weird. You know, if, if life were a musical and I went to see a play, I might feel like people do when they go see musicals, which is like, wow, if only life were like this. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> fucking people singing all the time i even have nightmares where i am um sort of all of a sudden thrust on stage and i'm supposed to know all the words to the stupid songs <laughs> and i'm like wait did we agree on what we were gonna sing <laughs> uh, there's probably something deep and like i don't know traumatic about your reaction to musicals <laughs> this is why i don't like um, most of the sort of Disney movies from the you know the nineties, especially Little Mermaid and yeah, Lion King. Like I was, I was like, oh, they're just trying to s- secretly get kids into musicals. That their musical agenda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that and, and it's probably true. Look what Broadway completely transformed <laughs> Broadway, and Lion King musical. I think it's the most successful musical of all time on Broadway. So. Holy shit! Holy shit! Beat that cats. <laughs> so they win. The Disney o- overlords. The, the musical lobby has won. <laughs> Resist people. Resist. The tobacco lobby was ultimately brought down or at least, you know, crippled. But you don't, big musical will always <laughs> find a way. You, you know, your question reminded me of this this um, small detail um, in in the Watchmen comic since superheroes actually exist in that world, all of the comic books that people read are like cowboy comics right. because they don't have any superhero comics because why would they? Like superheroes are a real thing. <laughs> I actually saw, we haven't talked in a while, but I saw, and I never see Marvel movies. I haven't, last Marvel movie I saw, I can't even remember. Maybe it was the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, but I can't take the CGI in it. But the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse yeah, uh, I a heard that it was really good, and b since it was itself animated, I I didn't have to worry about the CGI element, <laughs> right. which I just can't stomach at all. So I went and saw it, and it was good. It was amazing. Yeah, it was am- it's amazing. Really Spider Man, and it's a Sony. It's a Sony picture because Sony owns the rights to to Spider Man. But I went into it. Well, I had read some reviews, but when it was announced, I was like, oh, they're going to ruin this. Like, it's going to be so bad. But I think it's the best animated movie I've ever seen. Like, Really? Yeah. yeah. Like, the animation style was amazing. It, it was very um, cool. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and cool. the story was good, and it was fun, and it was not, it didn't take itself too seriously, but exactly. it had... It had rules, and it, you know, for the most part, followed it. But yeah, it, I'd like to see it again, maybe with some... Uh, narcotic help uh, because that scene uh, is there's a lot of really trippy elements to it. super trippy yeah yeah what good art design speaking of art design today did we say what we're talking about it was part we of did. The- we did okay. we mentioned it it's vertigo the alfred hitchcock movie from 1958 starring jimmy stewart and kim novak and we'll be discussing that shortly but but first a little business right yeah, 
Well, business or, the review the reviews. I thought I it'd be fun to. <laughs> bad reviews, be, bad for business. I, yeah, I thought it'd be fun. Um, some somebody on the Very Bad Wizard subreddit um, posted a thing, and I think they've posted on yours too. Um, they called oh, our I rate my go. professors, yeah, um, ratings, and they posted what is at the top of my rate my professor currently. <laughs> a very horrible, horrible review. <laughs> this this student put, if you want to comprehensively learn and appreciate psychology as a subject, I wouldn't recommend it. Lectures are useless and contain very little substance. <laughs> and they gave me like the lowest ratings. <laughs> That's kind of like how I feel about you as a co-host. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the person who posted it on Reddit, let's give credit, uh, Solenice W., um, said honestly felt like reading a podcast review. <laughs> um, and I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit. So of course, like when I first saw that, like it hurt my feelings. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that, if you get that feeling in your stomach. Well, I told um, you what I, I didn't, the Reddit one, they did this, like it was right near the start of the subreddit. Um, and then somebody posted something about my rate, my professor rating, <laughs> uh, or, or, or review, or I don't even remember. And I didn't even click the link. I, was, I thought there's just <laughs> there's, no, there's no upside in me doing this. There's no, that. so, I mean, I, I tend to feel that way. I will, have, I will occasionally check rate my professor, um, and just to see if there's something, you know, like if there's some sort of comment tre- uh, trend, but you know, I bec- there's not enough of them to really gain anything from it, like to gain a sense of 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 what the majority of students are really thinking of 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 what you're doing, and yeah, I, so I tend to yeah, stay no, away from these things. Whereas I mean, podcast really, reviews, not at all. Like I will, <laughs> I will seek those out. You know, as a, as a podcast, you kind of become a part of the internet, and you you know that those are the rules that people are going to follow. Like people saying mean things, even though it's it's more infrequent than I would have thought. Um, people saying mean things about about us on podcast reviews is just a, it's a bit easier. Yeah. Like I can, we kind of signed up for being a, a public. Like the classroom feels a little bit more uh, personal. But rate my professors is not a fruitful a place to look i i do realize that like a lot of people probably when choosing a class go to see that probably less now than they used to but um it's only going to attract people who have some sort of extreme view of you i wanted to mention this because i think there's a good lesson to me that i was taught by paul bloom at the beginning i was taing for his intro psych course and at the beginning of the semester, we had a TA meeting and he handed us each a page of student reviews um, of his. And some of them were like, this was the worst class I've ever taken. I thought I wanted to be a psychology major, but taking Paul Bloom's class is the completely, uh, the completely changed my mind. And some of them were glowing. This is the best class I've ever taken at Yale, like because of Paul Bloom, I want to be a psych major. And I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, that was like a kind of a vulnerable move to show us the good and the bad. But the the point he was trying to get across was you can't you can't take these too seriously. Like there is there is a a part of me that 
Maya Angelou said it once. She's this this way. She said, "Don't pick it up. Don't lay it down. If you get too gassed up by the positive comments, uh, whether it's podcasts or whether it's whether it's your teacher ratings or whatever, then you're opening yourself to get completely crushed by the bad comments." Yeah. And I feel like that that kind of a, holding it as a distance. They're gonna. There are people who are gonna love me. They're gonna love my personality. They're gonna think I'm charming. They're people gonna hate the like my guts. That's not useful feedback. It do, it does nothing for my professional development. Um, and that's a different kind of feedback than the feedback that does help your professional development. Um, right. I mean, and, and and sometimes I think student evaluations or maybe the occasional rate my professor evaluation does give you valuable feedback. It's just really hard to sift through the ones that don't to get to them. I mean, I think this is one of the problems with our profession. It's also one of the benefits in, in some ways, but there's very little feedback uh, and and this is especially true for teaching but even for other elements like we're both at research institutions where teaching is you know given nominal attention at best but just nominal attention and unless you're really really great or really really bad it makes absolutely no difference and really it only makes a difference if you're really 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 bad Um, yeah and it so we don't have these mechanisms and and we also don't really take classes to improve our teaching to improve our pedagogy it's all our own initiative how we decide to either improve or just stultify as as instructors and and you know it's it's in sharp contrast to other professions i was just my friend who's in a uh, he actually is now the ceo of a uh, small investment bank they had these 360 reports have you heard of these yeah <laughs> where, where they just interview everybody like in your company anonymously and generate through these interviews a narrative about you and what people think of you and it, <laughs> and your strengths and weaknesses and how much that might leave you vulnerable and naked to just like that <laughs> strikes at the deepest core of who you are especially you know in a profession where you so much of your life is committed to that to that work and we just don't have anything close to that nothing like that so i to- totally agree with you that we getting uh getting any kind of constructive feedback is is difficult Maybe with the exception of journal like reviews when you submit for peer review. Yeah. In fact, that my comment in the in the Reddit was you should read the reviews of my journal articles. This is nothing. But say you want to improve how you talk, like how you give talks. Like good luck finding anybody who's going to tell you anything right. other than good job. <laughs> like at the end, you know. The most informative thing maybe is if very few people tell you that was a good talk. <laughs> like maybe yeah. maybe you should worry then. Um, but you would so, have no idea what you did wrong or no. why or how you could improve it or, you know, you'd have to have a really good friend in, yeah. in the business. Actually, you know, having somebody who is a good enough friend that, who's willing to, to give you negative feedback is, it's worth its weight in gold. <laughs> well, you know, and also this is in sharp contrast to what people sometimes say about a philosophy talk where philosophers will try to tear apart the the person's 
uh, argument and their paper and really try to expose them and try to outsmart them. And I think that is true in some fields, although I think it's less true than it was 25, 30 years ago. Um, You know, that kind of gamesmanship and that kind of competitive... I think, you know, some a lot of people think of it as hyper masculine. It's like a dick measuring yeah. contest of yeah. like how how sharp you are and how quick you are to I think that there's good there's been reaction against that, which I think is good. Um but it also has made a lot of talks more like a love fest, you know. <laughs> and uh, you think it's swung in the opposite direction? Like. Maybe, yeah. I mean, yeah. not entirely. I, I think actually the free will world, since I've been involved with it for about fifteen years, has always been had a good balance of you know they'll criticize you, but it, but but you get a sense of underlying support for what you're doing. Right. Psychology actually has it's interesting in that the sub areas in psychology I find have very different cultures. So like cognitive psychology and judgment decision making which sort of has a foot in the world of economics and in the business school world they're much more likely to to harass you and interrupt your talk and, and there's a norm of that in social psychology and other fields of psychology it's it's and this is institution dependent but it's very much more supportive um, i remember when i was a postdoc the the department there you know if you gave a talk they'd be like I loved your talk. You know, they would open their questions with, that was a great talk. And they'd be like, were there any gender differences in your data? You know, they'd give you like a real low hanging, like a softball question. And I always thought that didn't prepare people adequately for what they were going to find in the real world when they, when they went and gave talks. Yeah. Um, You're going to get attacked and you're going to get, and and maybe this is the general lesson that, that I've, I, I am actually really sensitive about, about bad feedback. And it's ha- I've had to learn over the years to be able to um, try to. Tr- it's very easy to be tempted to dismiss it all and not learn from it, um, and it's very easy to be tempted to be to get really upset by it. And there's a balance there. You know, you have to you have to really try. You have to go out of your way to say, hey, maybe you know, maybe like this guy who says or girl who says. Uh, my lectures are useless and contain very little substance. Is there anything there that's right? Like, is it, you know, I don't want to think that, but, but. And that's really hard. Hey, let me ask you this. And this is, uh, this is for smaller classes, but this is something I've noticed over the last five or six years that if you have a class of students and you regularly, when you walk into the class, they're all talking with each other and it's a very lively environment among the students themselves before you even got there. And, you know, you have to sort of quiet them down to get the class started. Then that's almost always a great class and it's going to be a good semester. Whereas if you have a class where most of the time when you walk in there, they're not talking to each other. They're on their phones or they're doing whatever. That's just going to be a, it's going to be a rough semester. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I haven't, I hadn't thought about that, but I, as you were describing it, I do have this image of walking into a class seminar classroom and everybody being quiet and having that sinking feeling like I'm going to, the next two hours is going to be me trying really hard to get people to talk. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Th- those small seminar courses really get <clears throat> sometimes made or broken by one or two people. You know, sometimes it really is the case that there's one person or two people who really enjoy uh, commenting and discussing and they'll bring other people into the discussion and they can make the difference between a horrible semester and a great semester. And a great semester. Yeah. So what we're saying is if a class goes poorly, it's your fault, the student, not our fault, the professor. <laughs> to, to be honest, when I first read that Rate My Professor comment, my first thought was they must have gotten an A-. minus. Because A minus is the worst grade you can get at Cornell. <laughs> it means you were trying and you didn't get it. <laughs> uh. um, speaking of fuck ups, should we talk about a fuck up in a uh, give well read that I, I that you did? Uh, yes. So give well. Uh, it's one of our favorite previous sponsors. We're not sponsoring this episode, but but uh, there was a read that I gave a couple of episodes ago where I very, very offhandedly, perhaps too flippantly said, you should donate five bucks or whatever, because you can save a life. Now you in one of your paranoid moments (laughs) called me out on this after we got an email from a reader. Uh, and I was like, Oh, that people understand what I meant. But uh, And I thought, well, but they're very sensitive about this, how much very, money can save a life thing. That's right. You made so fun the of very, me. The very thing, and I was like, oh, Tamler, come on. Yeah. But the very thing that I've praised often about GiveWell is they're wonderful nerds and their wonderful sort of numeric-based approach. And transparency. Um, their transparency. Uh, they they let us know that, that this, this was a misleading way to talk about it. And they're absolutely right. So, so, uh, and I, they are such a transparent and honest company that, that the least we could do or I could do is issue a correction. So the cost that I was referring to of, of buying a single insecticide treated net is cheap. Um, but that doesn't translate into saving a life. Like if that were the case, that would mean every single person would get malaria if they didn't have one of these nets. And that's just not true. So they've actually created models to try to figure out how much money is given before a life is saved. And their model says it's about donating to the America, to the um, malaria Foundation, against malaria foundation about $4,500 before a life is saved. So uh, while what I was saying was, was uh, in the spirit of trying to tell you like the net that you buy might save a life. Uh, it is not an accurate way of saying what, it's possible. what it would cost. Yeah, it's like a lot. That's right. If a life is saved, it might be your, it might be the malaria net that you bought. But, 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 uh, yeah. So forty five hundred dollars. This is something. The the other reason that I was slightly concerned. Now, my responsibility is also. I have responsibility in this because I edited it, noticed it. It was sort of too late to. Had to re-record, and I just thought at the time, like you did, okay, they'll know what he meant. I was a little worried because I teach this. It's 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 a very kind of sh- concise um, exp- uh, expression of his view that he did, I think, for the New York Times Magazine, or where in that article he says something like $200 can save a life. And that's the Mm -hmm. figure that he used. And then when I interviewed him for the Very Bad Wizard book, 
I I brought that figure up and he said, well, actually now we're thinking it's more along the lines of fourteen to sixteen hundred dollars, not two hundred dollars. And so it does seem like this is a thing that is that they're focused on, right? Um, and rightly so, because you right. don't if the the whole point of these kinds of effective charities is that people don't think they're being duped and don't exactly. and and give well is is at the forefront of being transparent about that, which is why, That's right. like you said, they're one of our favorite sponsors. Yep. All right. That's right. So we'll be right back to talk about Vertigo. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is that time of the show when we like to express our deep appreciation to all of our listeners, everybody who who uh, takes part in the dialogue surrounding the show, whether you email us or whether you tweet us, whether you post on Reddit or Facebook. Uh, we very much appreciate it. We love our community, um, even when you guys are assholes. Um, we still love and you. Post our bad rate my professor <laughs> <Post> reviews. <laughs> um so uh so we really appreciate it if you do want to get a hold of us we're not hard to find you can tweet to us at tamler at peas or to the at very bad wizards account you can email us very bad wizards at gmail.com you can um, go to our facebook group very bad wizards or to our subreddit and engage in discussion there um just to note we have no control over those discussions (laughs) I know some people want us to, to, I don't know what intervene on these, in the, but this is an independent community and it is Reddit, but uh, but take part. Uh, it's it's a fun discussion usually. People usually are pretty nice. Um, which is reddit.com slash r slash very bad wizards. You can follow our Instagram even very bad wizards if you want to support us in more tangible ways, which we also very much appreciate. Um, you can go to our support page that's linked to at verybadwizards.com. It's just slash support. There you'll find the various ways in which you can support us. You could give a one-time donation to PayPal, which we very much appreciate. Um, you can just shop as you normally would by clicking on the Amazon link, and uh, and we would get a little cut of that, even though you don't have to pay anything extra. Or you can become one of our beloved Patreon supporters um, and go to patreon.com slash verybadwizards. Uh, Tamler, you just posted over in December, you posted another discussion of uh, yes. Twin Peaks. Yeah. With Jesse Graham and Natalia Washington. Uh, fun discussion uh, centered around five questions that we had. And yeah, and I'm about to post right around the time when this episode comes out, I'll post uh, a call for topic 
suggestions. So all of our Patreon supporters will be able to suggest a topic. Dave and I will then narrow it down to five choices, and then our $5 and up listeners will have a chance to vote and select a topic. And I'm excited just to get topic suggestions from our listeners because... When you've done a hundred and what fifty five of these, yeah. you start to you start to sort of really depend on your listeners and that community Seriously. for ideas, and also just to know when we're being repetitive. Um, we're getting a lot of emails from people who have gone to our backlog, and they talk about you know certain episodes that happened. Even episodes that I really loved, but I just have almost no memory of. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and I and so you know that it's it's we're extra appreciative that not only our community engages with us, um, and not only do they sometimes support us in more tangible ways, but that they give us ideas and help make the podcast better. Yeah, I mean, honestly, like you know the. The suggestions to do Borges, for instance, like yeah, <laughs> have it's those turned into my favorite episodes. Um, and if you haven't read those stories, please read them. Then then you can listen. But they're great. But but all so so much of what we've talked about lately has come directly from from listeners. Um, last thing I'll mention is that we got a really nice email from Matthew Herberts, who is a filmmaker. He made a short film, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, you should always check our show notes if you want to know what we're talking about. Um, this is a, a short film called Relax, which is, I think, a, a, a very good film. Um, it's only, what, seven minutes long? Um, and it is about uh, an anti-Trump person getting mad at a Trump supporter. Um, but his, the his reason older that, brother, it seems like. <clears throat> yeah, or brother-in-law, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, but the reason Matthew sent it to us is is that at the very end of the film, as the main character is is in his car, um, there is audio of our discussion of the Trump election, which was really surreal to to hear. Yeah, <laughs> to hear my voice, your voice, in a media in a medium other than our own podcast. Um, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so we appreciate all of that. It's really fun. It's it it always surpasses our expectation. Yes, thank you guys. Um, oh, but right before we get into this, I, I just wanted to mention that I'm sad that uh, Bob Einstein died. Yeah, who you're often compared to, <laughs> not <laughs> your comedy necessarily, but your voice. I can't hope to have been as funny as that guy, but my voice. Yes, some people have said that I'm a voice twin. I don't hear it, but I think you're right. And if anything, it's made me love Bob Einstein even more. Or Super Dave Osborne. Super, Super Dave Osborne. As he's sometimes called. He was... He talked like this. Yeah. Um, uh, on Curb Your Enthusiasm is probably what he's most known for. He's And he was fucking hilarious. There, in fact, if you want, if you're a fan, I, I happened to listen to this when it came out. Uh, the Ringer... Bill Simmons and cousin Sal, who worked for the Jimmy Kimmel show, they did an interview of with him, and it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, it is I so heard funny. That. <laughs> it it it's just honestly, it's me. It's 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 in the top five funniest podcasts I've ever listened to. I listen to a <laughs> lot of comedy, uh, and 
he he was I, I had no idea that this guy was so funny and I don't know they just reposted it um, so check, it's, I think it's it's on the BS uh, podcast check it out if you're a fan or even if you're not because it's just hilarious cool all right all right so we are gonna discuss vertigo I think this was a suggestion by a listener at some point it was directed by Alfred Hitchcock it's from 1958 starring Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak um, at the time it, it debuted to mixed reviews and just okay box office but it gained stature almost every year afterwards and especially after the restoration that they did in 1997 and then finally in 2012 the sight and sound poll of film critics named it the greatest film of all time this is a poll from film critics around the world so citizen kane had been number one for 50 years and now it's vertigo i we i want to give a brief synopsis of it but uh maybe just get our impressions off the bat at first um i watched this last night again i've seen it many yeah, times me too. Uh, but i watched it last night again with my family and before we started uh, my wife jen asked what this why we were doing this movie what it had to do with philosophy or moral psychology specifically and at first you know like i thought are you kidding me like because this is far and away maybe the most academically studied film of all of Hitchcock's movies. Uh, like there's more scholarship, academic scholarship uh, of this than than you know the vast majority of, of of films. So I was like, "What do you mean?" But then she, you know she's like, "Okay, so what then?" <laughs> and I couldn't really give a specific answer. This was before we watched it. Um, now I have some thoughts, but, but what do you think are the most obvious philosophical and psychological themes of this movie? Uh, you know, first of all, uh, fuck you for this very specific reason, which is I didn't even think about that. And the reason I didn't think about that is because I have already just in my mind, we do movies. And they're just good movies, and and you know we talk about them because we're a philosopher and a psychologist, and so so that's the only aspect that to me is a necessary requirement is that we like we we like the film and that we talk about it. I didn't so even we've think become about, a film podcast. Exactly, that's why I'm saying fuck you. I never wanted this, <laughs> but I never I never thought that that would be a requirement. I just figured. If we like it, there's going to be stuff to talk about that's interesting and deep in some in some way. But now that you ask me, I mean, the psychology. I mean, Hitchcock's psych, Hitchcock's psychology is is amazing. Um, the just in in this case, this is this is a film that is so deeply about emotions in its in its themes um, that. It sort of obviously has a psychological relevance. Now, Hitchcock's psychology was a little weird. You know, I don't know that he's speaking what emotions. For the what do you mean by that? Why do you say guilt, this is fear, uh, fear okay. and guilt and desire, sexual desire, um, obsession? Um, so emotions that, yeah. that border on pathology as well. 
Um, right. And and Hitchcock, so we'll talk about this, I guess, a bit. His use of color. I mean, this oh my is, God. yeah. I mean, the the use of color to tag both characters and character development, but also those emotional aspects of of the characters. Um, yeah, is is so good. It's so good. Um, yeah. No, so. I definitely want to talk about that. It's not something I'm always so attuned to as much as I should be. But That's in right. this movie, holy shit, it's like... You can't you, help it. You can't help it. Uh, yeah. That, you know, the one that's jumping out at me that in her hotel when uh, oh. towards the end with the neon green as he's uh, turning her yeah. into the woman that um, he thinks is dead is just... It's, you know, it's hallucinatory. It's trippy but in a way that just shows how how out of control he's become at that moment yeah yeah and how um, sick you know ebert i was reading the roger ebert review he he argues that that is one of the best scenes in all of film um, yeah that 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 apartment I, I think that's right i I, yeah. I think i might agree with that i was just but so so much so that the colors at first, I was like, "Is are my is my TV set saturation turned yeah. up too high? Like it's so <laughs> so saturated." There's the color. scene with the sequoias, you know, yeah. where oh, the soil is just like red. It's like blood yeah. red. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I had that same thought. Or is this restoration? Like I was relieved to read <laughs> that the restoration was is considered just a master class right. in in film restoration because I thought, is this exaggerated? Is this like uh, right? Uh, and no, this is this was Hitchcock's intention all along. Um, so I think at least the psychological themes are obvious. The philosophical ones, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, to the extent that that there's overlap between the idea of obsession, uh, of identity, right? Um, uh, I, I feel it's more psychological than philosophical, but but maybe over the course of our discussion. Well, so I'll, I'll just briefly say the philosophical theme that jumped to mind for me, which is the fundamental, central importance of perspective in shaping our experience. So our subjective perspective and how that shapes our experience. So I think this comes out on so many levels. So you see it at the level of the character of Jimmy Stewart. He's seeing Madeline or, uh, you know, later Judy, Judy. as as both they are setting up for him to see her, but also as he wants to see her as this like distant, almost vacant, sad, beautiful woman. Um, and I think you get it at the level of the viewer too. So you have this break in perspective when we find out two thirds of the way through there's uh the, the twist is revealed and that is a shocking break in perspective for the viewer. We now see the movie from her perspective, whereas before we saw it entirely from the the character Jimmy Stewart, and that changes the way we see the movie. And That's this right. is something that Hitchcock made a very significant choice. Um, and and then I think the movie itself and the scholarship and the critical discussion of the movie also is an interesting case of how perspective will shape how you see the movie i was you know just doing a little research as i always do about how people regard the movie and you know it's you see all these different ra radically different 
perspectives on it. Some people see it as misogynist, kind of confirmation of Hitchcock as this misogynist, controlling uh, male uh, figure. Some see it as a radical feminist statement. Uh, right. Uh, a kind of revolt against the kind of misogyny that um, is present in the the late fifties when it's done, and I think a lot of people, as you said, see it as a kind of very deeply personal revelation <laughs> of Hitchcock's own right. issues, his sexual repression, his obsessions, his his way of of seeing women, and so the the idea of perspective and how it shapes how we view the world. I I think of that as a philosophical um, theme that's crucial to understanding or to approaching this movie. Yeah. yeah. So should I give like a brief summary of the plot, and then yes. we can talk about um, if you're if, all these... if it is possible to briefly summarize it. <laughs> it's a convoluted I mean, it's like, plot. It, it's plot. it. Yeah. It's. In that in that sense, it's I don't think it's film noir in any no. technical. In, it's in a, any technical I would sense. call it a psychological thriller. I, if, yeah, like a, but in the but in in some very very important ways, it is film noir. It has a convoluted plot. Yeah, it has a convoluted. <laughs> it has a detective. It has in, not a femme fatale exactly, but it's sort almost. of almost almost. Yeah. Um, it's the story of a man named Scotty, although he's sometimes called John. Um, and he has uh, agoraphobia, which is a... No, acrophobia. Is that how it's called? Fear acrophobia? Of yeah, acrophobia. Uh, he, he, ha- he finds out that he has this crippling fear of heights and this dizziness, this vertigo when he gets to heights. Uh, and that causes the death of a policeman. So he has to quit the police force. And, uh, and then he's hired by an old friend from his school days named Gavin Elster... He, he hires Scotty to follow his wife, Madeline. Um, and the, the reason Elster gives, he says, I'm about to commit Madeline to medical care because she just seems possessed. And I'll talk to her and all of a sudden she's not there. And then she's also wandering off all day and I don't know where she goes. And so he hires Jimmy Stewart to find out where she's going. So he follows her, and this is a big part of the first two-thirds of the movie, follows her to a museum where she stares at this portrait he follows her to a hotel where she sits for a few hours uh, a few times a week and then to mission dolores which is about an hour south of the city um of san francisco um where he stares at a grave of a woman named carlotta valdez and then we subsequently learn that carlotta valdez was madeline's great-grandmother um, and that Carlotta had been discarded by her husband after they had their first child, and that she ultimately—it wasn't her husband; it was she was his mistress. Um, she, and he he had a a wife that he couldn't have babies with. He took her as a mistress. Once she right. gave the baby to him, he discarded her. Right. Yeah. And then she ultimately went mad, was wandering the streets, asking about her her child, her daughter. Stabbing people. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then she committed suicide. And 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 so then he's still following her. And on one of these following sessions, she goes to the Golden Gate Bridge and jumps in the water. And he rescues her. He undresses her, brings her back to the apartment. And at that point, she wakes up as Madeline and he... And at that point, he falls in love with her. Jimmy Stewart falls in love with Madeline. 
But then the next time she tries to commit suicide, is it? It is at that the bell tower of the mission, Mission Dolores, and she runs up there. And as he's following her, he can't get up there because of his vertigo. And then you have that famous shot, and she jumps. At least that's what we think at the time. She jumps, and, and you see a body hit the hit, and the hit floor. The, yeah, that looks exactly like her. And so again, his fear of heights in his mind resulted in the death of another person. So he has a nervous breakdown and it becomes deeply depressed. And six months later, he's just wandering the streets aimlessly looking for people who might be Madeline. And then he sees a woman who looks like Madeline named Judy Barton from Salinas, Kansas, also (laughs) played by Kim Novak, um, who gives this remarkable like the first i remember the first time i saw this movie thinking wait is that another actress i guess yeah she's great that's exactly right i mean in the same way you know mulholland drive you almost don't know that it's naomi watts at first at first you don't know that because now she's playing more of a working class person you know at the time she was playing a rich wife of a wealthy shipbuilder and now she's playing somebody what does she do does she work in a hair salon uh, yeah, it's like something retail, I feel yeah, like. Yeah, something retail. Yeah. And then you get this shift almost immediately. He he wants to ha- have dinner with her, and then you find out, oh, it's actually Judy Barden was in on this plot with Gavin Elster. She was his mistress, uh, and the plot was to kill his wife uh, and make it look like a suicide. But Jimmy Stewart doesn't know that. He thinks it's just a striking, striking resemblance. And then in just a unbelievably creepy sequence he convinces her to dress up like madeline wear the same clothes buy the same dress and dress up like madeline when she was dressing up like carlotta and uh, so uncomfortable it's so uncomfortable (laughs) And, and get her hair done in the same way and 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 to do it so that he can love her um and you find out that judy barton kind of has fallen in love with Jimmy Stewart. And so even though she knows that this is sick and she knows why he's doing it, and she knows at some level that it could reveal her role in the murder, she goes along with it. But then she wears the necklace that Carlotta wore, and that's the necklace from the portrait. And he realizes what happens, brings her to Mission Dolores, takes her to the top of the bell tower again, and now he can get up there. He's conquered his crippling fear of heights. Um, And he tells her that he knows, and you don't know what's going to happen at that point, but then a nun appears, but looking like just in shadows. I don't know how you could see that, but you could see it as almost like an angel of death or something. And uh, she jumps. Judy Barton jumps. Um, or or falls. Or falls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It could be that she falls. And right. he's looking over. And once again, there's this woman at the bottom uh, right. that, that he... Uh, but guess what? what? Vertigo cured. But vertigo <laughs> cured. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the... Uh, it's not brief, but yeah. it is... The best I could do. It doesn't even mention uh, another kind of central character played by Barbara Belgetti's Midge. Midge. That's uh, right. The the sort of friend-zoned uh, woman. 
<laughs> friend-zoned woman. Yeah, she's clearly in love with Jimmy Stewart, but and she's very sensible, and she's she's actually the only person who really understands what's going on in the movie. Yeah, but he doesn't love her. He loves this vision, right? So through you know this, the movie plays really well, sort of as a mystery at the beginning. The first third of yeah. the movie, there's this like detective mystery that he's unraveling, and it and it seems as if as if the the story is that this woman is actually crazy and and perhaps even supernaturally possessed by her great grandmother, and um so he's he you know he's putting together these clues. Um, and I remember the first time I saw it thinking, well, that's stupid. If that's the, if that's the solution to the mystery that she really is possessed, you know, that's, (laughs) I thought that would be dumb. Um, but it's almost like a whole different movie then after, after that, right. You could imagine a a mediocre movie being just that story. So, I mean, what let's, maybe we should talk about the, just to start out. So in the book that it's based on, and it was a book that was written by a couple of French authors who wrote it specifically with the intention and the hope that Hitchcock would make it into a movie. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So in the book, it plays out as a more conventional whodunit, and the reveal only comes at the end. So the audience finds out when Jimmy Stewart finds out that she was, you know, what the plot was. And Hitchcock decided in the screenplay to change it so that the audience knows what happens well before Jimmy Stewart knows what happened. It was what? something that was controversial with the producers and the studio heads, and like oh, it was only decided once and for all, actually by Hitchcock's wife uh, had the final word on it and that they would do it the way they did it. To me, like that's such a... It is such the right choice, and it could have been not a... It it could have just been... It would have reduced it to a cool, twisty, you know, (laughs) Shamalamian... Kind of... Good Shamalamian, but Shamalamian kind of thrill. Shyamalan? Shyamalan. (laughs) Shyamalanian. It took me a second to figure out. I apologize um, to my Armenian friends, of which I have one very good one. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And in fact, what this allows... Is he, is the, he Armenian? He might not be. Never mind. No, Indian. Indian, <laughs> yes. Uh, man, this is it. it I'm done. Uh, this is what happens when Tamler doesn't have alcohol. Okay, uh, I know. Uh, no, th- that the decision to make the reveal something that the audience knows... Um, but Jimmy Stewart doesn't know makes allows for this to become a great film. I think for the following reason that, that from then on we get to see Judy's pain at being uh, turned into somebody who she was, you know, she was basically hired to, to, to be um, this wife. Well, she was his mistress, so I think she thought, we don't get exactly, I think she thought they were going to be together after this was done, and then he... Yeah, 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 right. They expressed their mutual love for each other um, at some point, you know, the second day that they're hanging out, and so, and it really seems... No, 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 I'm talking about her and Elster. Oh, 
Oh, she was a mistress? She was his mistress, yes. Oh, and she was just impersonating the wife? Yes. Uh, okay. Um, so that they could be together, but then he discarded her, much uh, like okay. Carlotta. Much like Carlotta dis- got yeah. discarded, yeah. Um, uh, but the the great performance of Kim Novak in expressing sort of this uh, weird sadness almost a heartbreaking feeling that she wants to be loved by Jimmy Stewart for as Judy, not as Madeline, but she's willing to go along with it. She has some, some scenes where you could just see that pain in her face. And because we know the whole story, I think that's much, much more uh, poignant, right? We, yeah. yeah. It, it's more tragic from her perspective. Yeah. Imagine not knowing that you're like, why is she putting up with this creepy guy asking her to, you would start, mm-hmm. you would lose kind of, uh, I mean, you would, you might, and and because we're with his perspective, you might just lose sympathy for, for that character for not just getting the hell out of what's obviously just a weird situation. But also right. I think, you know, I was wondering about this because, you know, knowing the movie really well, he's pretty creepy in, when he's following her in the opening scene. Like he's pretty Absolutely. obsessive. And and so maybe the reason you don't notice that is because we have this from his perspective. But once I you so. get her perspective, you start to notice just how weirdly obsessive and possessive this person is yeah and and jimmy stewart is in this movie i think the most unlikable to me as as he is in in any of the other films of of his that i've seen where it's very hard for jimmy stewart to come across as unlikable but he comes across as a as a real creepster um from from i feel like the moment that he saw her in the restaurant the very first time where he gets hired by Gavin Elster. And, you know, this is something that that I was thinking is, you know, Jimmy Stewart is hired by his friend, believing that it is his friend's wife. And he pretty much just completely betrays his friend. Like, if it, in fact, was her wife, his wife. Uh, he's just like, well, fuck it. Like, I'm falling in love with you after two days. Yeah, bro um, code? I mean... <laughs> nope. No, no, no honor. This was just pre-bro no, code, I guess. He's... It's a pre-bro code film. Yeah. I, you get the sense, though, that they weren't really good friends, right? That he hadn't no, right. seen he him in a long, long time. And, yeah, he yeah. knew him from college, right? Yeah. Um, it's still. like, still. It's like <laughs> Yeah, you've been hired to follow this person, not to, <laughs> yeah. not to take off all her clothes. And, You're right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Um, so so I, I'm kind of creeped out by Jimmy Stewart throughout this movie. Um, and I don't know if that was intentional. And this is, I think, what people are pointing to, you know, this sort of autobiographical way in which Hitchcock seemed obsessed with with women. Um, Blondes. And yeah. And, and in fact, he kind of creates the perfect vertigo. I mean, the perfect Hitchcock woman. Um, yes. Uh, it it's almost seems self-expressive or cathartic perhaps or, or something it seems like like hitchcock is is taking his his very very personal obsessions and laying them bare in this movie i don't know if that was his intention at all but 
I almost don't care. I think it's just true whether he intended that. It's funny because there's a lot of meta, like parallels. So I was about to, yeah. (laughs) Kim Novak wanted had her own ideas about what her character should wear, and Hitchcock that they got into fights on set. Hitchcock was I was like you know I've been planning for three months the 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 things that you'd wear for this and the color scheme and that's and you know they had a they had a troubled relationship on set although i think it's sometimes overblown just how troubled it it was but it's this idea that hitchcock is dressing her up to be what she needs to be for him and just the way that jimmy stewart is doing that and 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 kim novak in some some interview that i read in in a couple i think she she mentions that throughout she was fighting against hitchcock's um and and she thinks kind of successfully so that he, she, she says that you can tell in her character that she was resisting Hitchcock's manipulation of her and that this came out in Judy's resistance of being manipulated by Scotty, um, which, if true, is is a pretty awesome pretty awesome way of bringing bringing that sentiment from real life into into your character. Um, there are a lot of other meta aspects that I want to comment on, but but I'll save those sort of toward the end. Um, I, uh, but back to Jimmy Stewart, the one thing that I learned from this movie is Jimmy Stewart is, appears incapable of making out. Uh, he looks like a horrible kisser. <laughs> my daughter said too. Yeah. <laughs> he looks, he looks like, like, uh, like an, uh, like an awkward, uh, I don't know. Like, well, you just like, they don't kiss. They like press their <laughs> faces against each other. <laughs> it's like a pressing. I, yeah, it's so weird. It's yeah. so weird. It just does not. So Barbara Belgettis, who plays Midge, she's a character that isn't in the book. What do you think her importance is? And I think there's a scene which is maybe the saddest scene in the movie that she's centrally involved in. And the one I remember, like I saw this the first time my mom took me to it. It's got to be like 1983 or 84 when it was first re-released. And I just and I remember that scene vividly from then. Which like, scene? The what? The so one when she, she makes a painting of yeah, herself yeah, yeah. as yeah. Carlotta Valdez, and he says, "Oh no, this isn't funny." And then he they were going to go out for dinner in a movie, and he just yeah. immediately he just breaks it, and and she starts, you know, cr- you know, she she realizes she made some kind of miscalculation, although. Yeah. Uh, it's not I, totally clear why he had that reaction or it's a very jarring scene actually it is it, when i i watched it twice when i was watching the movie last night um because yeah. of that just to see his his like it's not funny it's not funny and i could see where he's coming from um where you know this woman has has essentially you know he had to save this woman's life she's possible she's possibly still suicidal and she's you know yeah. <laughs> mentally unstable and it's just not a funny joke um, but it's also not a joke, right? I mean, she's saying, I want to be your object of obsession, not a portrait. It shouldn't be a portrait. It should right. be, there's an actual person right here. <laughs> it's an actual, it's actually a very weird looking painting. Too, it is. It's, <laughs> it's really creepy. Well, I mean, part but of think- it is she looks, she looks like a, a person, like a real person who has yes. real understanding and the, the portrait and the way that Kim Novak plays 
Carlotta slash Madeline is of just a distant vision. They're not real yeah. people. I, I think that, that the role that Midge plays here is an injection of normalcy, almost as a proxy for, a, for an audience member. Um, but it is to remind us that Jim, Jimmy Stewart is losing it. Yeah. Um, and she's also a nice contrast with Kim Novak. Yeah. She's, a re- as you say, a real person. Yeah. Sensible young woman who actually right. really seems like the smartest character in the sense that she she really just f- kind of figures out what's going on right. with that whole situation uh, very quickly. There is something kind of sexless about her, and yeah. there's nothing sexless about Kim Novak in any of the roles that she's playing. And you can see how this could be a way of Hitchcock sort of, there's the here's the woman that I should be attracted to because Barbara yeah. Bel Geddes is a very pretty actress. I think that it's very clear to me in the movie watching it. Like, I think that she's the cute, she's cuter. She's, I think it's like pretty clear that Jim Stewart is a fool. <laughs> really? So like, yeah. but you think that, cause there is, I mean, the way that it's done up, she's not, she doesn't have a, a lot of sex appeal. No, but she's funny. She's charming. She's, she's clearly talented she's as you say smart she's a good artist um and hitchcock couldn't help but throw in that she makes brassiers right Um, (laughs) exactly it's like what what do you want jimmy stewart like (laughs) what's wrong with you and i think he's sort of saying that to himself i read and i don't know if this is true but i read in one of the things that alfred hitchcock so he had a wife that he respected and it was very instrumental in in his work in terms of editing it and uh, making crucial decisions, including the decision we talked about. And he said he had sex with her one time when they conceived their daughter, and that was it. Jesus. So the, and so he had a lot of strong women around him that he worked with and that he trusted and respected, but then he also had this obsession with these other kinds of women. And I think this was like a illustration of that, a reflection of that. Right. Um, at the beginning, when you were talking about the various interpretations of this film, and some people view it as as ultimately misogynistic, and some people view it as ultimately feminist and empowering, um, in a weird way, I I think it's they're obvious. It's obviously both. I you know I don't know, right? Like I I think that Hitchcock probably was a misogynist in some deep way. Like he was weirdly sexually repressed. Um, there's <laughs> I read a, an interview with the production, the designer, yeah, um, where he was talking about the the use of Coit Tower in the background. I remember I went to college not far from San Francisco, and I remember thinking, "God damn, that's just a dick in the middle of the city." Uh, but apparently, <laughs> that is exactly why Hitchcock wanted it. Um, he wanted it as a phallic symbol to be visible from Jimmy Stewart's apartment. And there's a a moment. Where she asks, Madeline asks about Coit Tower, and and he says something like, "That's the only time I've ever appreciated having Coit Tower so close to me," or something like that. He's just clearly like, clearly uncomfortable. But I think it both reveals Hitchcock's weird obsession with crafting the perfect woman, and because maybe of Kim Novak's performance, reveals the possibility of a woman exerting independence so, resisting that 
let, let play devil's advocate. And how yeah. does she resist it? She does everything that is asked of I mean, her and does it at at his behest. I, she makes she every time she puts up a little fight, like oh, I don't. This dress is fine. It looks. Uh, I like. You know it. Uh, he 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 says no, and yeah. you know you have that woman who works at the dress shop saying the man. This is a man who knows what he wants, you know, over and over again. And then with the hair, she makes a little rebellion, but yeah. it's immediately right. It's I mean, it's horror. It's it's as as you mentioned, it's really uncomfortable. Like uh, Jimmy Stewart is coming across as his character increases a creepiness, and the height of his creepiness is the, those moments where he's just dead set on having her look exactly like this dead woman. So it is not just to me, like it's not just her resistance in the film where she, she does put up a fight. She's very unhappy with what he's doing and, and he's getting increasingly crazy in his, in his demands. The fact that he is showing that the ugliness of Jimmy Stewart wanting to completely control her and that this is breaking her heart slowly that that to me is 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 really the part right where at least it's illustrative it's it's laying bare the damage that this can do to another human being and to me judy is actually at least for the second part of the film the protagonist yeah absolutely and that's and that's because of the choice that hitchcock and mrs hitchcock uh, make um right I, I yeah i mean the way that it would i could I could see it as a feminist statement is in exactly what you said. The way it exposes the harm and the, yeah. the wrongness of this kind of controlling male figure. And I don't think that's something that's unintentional. You, you have an echo of it when they're describing the story of Carlotta Valdez, this guy in Berkeley, and he says something right. along the lines, as he says, she's just discarded. Men could do that back then, you know? And and it, Yeah. And when he's saying that, I wasn't sure whether he was saying it wistfully or come across condemningly. As <laughs> condemningly. But yeah, you guess you never know with Hitchcock. <laughs> um, well, in, in the interview that Hitchcock did with Truffaut, with uh, the French filmmaker Francois Truffaut, that became a book, right? Became the a book. It's a great book. A, yeah, 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 I have the book. I own the book. Here's a psychological theme: he, him dressing her up to look like Madeline, who he believes is dead. His intention was to shoot it as if he's undressing her, um, mm-hmm. because his goal is to is necrophilia, to have sex <laughs> with the dead dead woman. And he says right at the very end, where she has the 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 uh, the dress and the shoes and. Um, but that she's let her hair down um, because, and she says it goes better with her with her face or something like that. And and he says, no, you have to put your hair up. Hitchcock said that was like she's naked except she still has her knickers on. And then when she took, <laughs> when she puts her hair up, now that the knickers are off, and now wow. he can love her and accept her and embrace her and and so that's the moment where they're ha- he's he's finally having sex with he's finally engaging in that act of necrophilia that he has been trying to engage in right and i i mean <laughs> i hopefully hitchcock didn't mean you know the actual sex with a dead body um but in some symbolic way like yeah. this is 
having sex with somebody who just does not exist, right? He's creating somebody. Yeah. Um, and who you, and, it's, so the, they, their existence is purely your creation. Which, le- which th- this leads me to a kind of interpretation of this film that, that uh, like, I don't know if it's a stretch for me, but um, because I, I think I'm just a fan of meta-ness in general. Everything that I like either is meta in some way or, or I interpret it in that way. But my favorite works of art are ones that seem to be critique, like seem to be commenting about themselves, about something. Yeah. Themselves. And and here's what I'm what I was thinking as I saw the movie and I was reading about it. Um, this could be taken as uh, as a statement of what what movies cinema Hollywood does to the audience. It creates this fake person that we then become obsessed with. And if that's the case, if that's the statement that's being made to me the stand-in for Hitchcock in this movie is Gavin Elster. Gavin Elster creates this person, ex nihilo, sort of, you know, and and Jimmy Stewart, from the moment he sees her in that restaurant, it is like the, you know, a classic movie sort of love at first sight moment. Um, he is obsessed with her in the way that that people become obsessed with with actors. And he has created this person this person is not true, is not a real person. And Jimmy Stewart has to deal with the pain of, of that not being a real person. And he tries really, really hard to make that into a real person. And the whole time, this, there are other real people in his life. Right. Right? Yeah. And, and I, I, I couldn't help but read that this is, you know, and we haven't even talked about his actual vertigo, but, but the role of this, this movie director in, in, giving us emotions is like what Gavin Elster has done to Jimmy Stewart. You know, he's taking advantage of his natural sort of vertigo, exploiting it, um, exploiting it masterfully by creating this scene of her running up to the tower, causing Jimmy Stewart to have this, this reaction, killing her. And then, uh, and then he has to deal with the aftermath of having fallen in love with somebody who doesn't really exist. And then he goes off to Europe to make other movies or something. <laughs> exactly. He's going to uh, do this to some other schmuck. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And of course, I take it this is the implication of what you're saying. That would make us Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We are the audience that is experiencing vertigo. And, and you know, to bring Hitchcock's legendary ability to manipulate the audience is, to me... Uh, we we are Jimmy Stewart. We are right. The the Dolly shot is the quintessential Hitchcock ability to manipulate our own vertigo. He's making us feel vertigo in the way Jimmy Stewart feels vertigo by giving us that that very famous vertigo shot. Um, yeah, and you know the cult of celebrity. We yeah. they create, and this is what studios did. Not just directors, but studios would craft these personas and have them go out on dates with the right people. And, and Kim Novak exactly says this. She says that that it was she uh, had a brief relationship with Sammy Davis Jr. Right, and was told not to by the studios. Yes. Right. She was forbidden to see Sammy because, of course, Sammy Davis Jr. was black, a black Jew. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I just read about that today. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's yeah. definitely a, a, 
a way of interpreting it. We are Jimmy Stewart, and there's a lot of meta. There's a lot of ways in which the movie is indicting us. Kim Novak looking at us, when she has the revelation, I think there's a moment where she stares right at the camera. It's a it's a weird moment um, where she's staring, and it's like she's staring at us, um, yeah. implicating us in this charade that she was forced to participate in. Or not right. forced to participate in, but... No, but I think, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, my sense is maybe I got more of it than you, but her resistance is real, but a real sort of resistance that, you know, was... She she could only resist so much. I mean, she's crying. She's begging him not to do this. Yes. But Jimmy Stewart has the power. Yeah. You know? what, what, it, I think you're right. Like, I think this has got to be almost an explicit intention on Hitchcock's part. The fact that she's from Salinas, Kansas... And so she's the prototypical young actress that came from yeah. Kansas to go. And so you can say, yes, she's complicit. She agreed to do what the the Gavin Elster was was asking her to do, but she's just a, a working she, girl from Kansas. Right. And she did it for money. And she did it for money and she did it for yeah. you know, for love and for all the same reasons that probably uh, a lot of young actresses from Kansas come out right. to Hollywood and agree to do what these the very controlling studio heads and directors ask them to do. Right. Um, not unlike not unlike uh, Mulholland Drive's uh, yes. central character. Which is a yeah. very I mean Mulholland Drive I, I thought a lot about as I was rewatching this it is uh there's so many parallels. I, I, let me just say a little bit more about the perspective thing. Yeah, yeah. When you really try to get in the head of Jimmy Stewart and you're th- seeing what he's seeing in this woman, it's so different from what we actually learn is going on, what he's seeing, what he's imagining. And you have to wonder to what extent we all suffer from <laughs> this exact condition, right? Where we perceive somebody, a person, and their circumstances and their situation and and we're projecting a story onto them and a personality and an identity and in this case it's being deliberately manipulated but sometimes it might not be deliberately manipulated and we're still not able to really discern what's going on and we are trapped in that and there's a sense in which i mean you said it when you said Jimmy Stewart is is us, but there's a sense yeah. in which we are we're all in this condition of being a prisoner of our perspective, and this movie brings out the extent to which that just sort of generalizes uh, to multiple levels. Yeah, and a prisoner of others' perspective on us. Of us, yes, exactly. Yeah. Which she becomes when right when uh they meet again and she's judy this time yeah and i don't know if i'm reading into it but i think kim novak does or hitchcock or whatever does a great job of actually romanticizing madeline so much that she seems like this you know whatever goddess this ideal goddess um that even when judy becomes 
Madeline in appearance again, she never quite gets back that that je ne sais quoi like the ethereal the, kind of yeah, yeah only in that scene where she's ghost she's a ghost like apparition she retained this perfection um right and then you're right back to maybe it's because we saw her as judy and we can't get back we can't undo what we know of her as judy or maybe there's something actually in her performance where she doesn't have that same affectation that that she had as madeline but again, we're now seeing it from a different perspective. We're not trapped in his perspective anymore. We're tra- we're right. now in her perspective, and so right. maybe we, you know, maybe she doesn't look any different, except we see her differently now. Yeah, that's right. And you get the sense that this is this is Jimmy Stewart's orgasmic moment. Yeah, when he sees her as this apparition for a split second, he is happy. That's the perfection. That's the necro- yeah. That's the necrophilia moment. That's the yeah. money shot. The yeah. Money shot on the <laughs> dead body. Money shot, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, and I think it's deliberately meant to be orgasmic, as you said. Right. Right. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. No. I and I think that that's you know that's what's philosophically fascinating about this movie is the extent to which we're all implicated on a number of different levels prisoners of other people's impression of us and prisoners of our own impression of other people is an inescapable part of you know our experience right and she so much wants uh the judy character so much wants to be loved for who she really is for for her authentic self yeah for for judy and and he's, you know, not only doesn't love her for being Judy, but, but, you know, just loves some, some idealized version of. And, and, you know, like she's hot as Kim Novak as Judy, right? Like she's kind of yeah. got her, you know, I think she's made to be a more uh, buxom kind of beautiful woman at that point. And it's just so not what what he wants that it's comical even though it could be what a lot of men might want but it's so not uh you know i think they did a good job of contrasting the judy and what she is and the the, her accent and her the way she dresses and when she goes and dresses in that purple which i guess it 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 just seems wrong it seems it certainly seems wrong to to him but it don't you right. know we've been tra- we've been so no, long no, in his head no that's not right at all <laughs> yeah like it's just like no she shouldn't be in purple like that's wrong like the, the it's uh so uh, yeah i mean that's i guess that's the thing that to me makes this movie great is i could i, I, I there's so much to think and talk about and so many i i i would watch this again you know yeah. next week do you you know i it, i'm i'm struck by the the that this is what it must be like for movie stars and actors of some level of fame that this is what their existence is that it must be and i've heard some you know uh, <laughs> play me the world smiles violin for for the sympathy i have for actors but one source of sympathy that i really have is when they say it's hard to date people who think that you are that movie person Right, who they sure. they think that you are that person that they've seen in the movie yeah. so many times that that it's very hard to get them to see that you are a different person, um, 
you know, I feel that same way when I meet people who listen to us. I'm like, I'm not that guy on the podcast. <laughs> Except that I we mean. are those. We are those. <laughs> Except for that we are. Yeah. <laughs> we are just exactly like we are. <laughs> Authenticity is a weakness yeah. <laughs> of mine. <laughs> Can I talk a little bit about, so, so, you know, Hitchcock was to me, I, to, it's not an original point to everybody, <laughs> a master at manipulating his audience, right? Um, I think that the there is a discomfort from the very beginning, that opening scene where Jimmy Stewart is, ch- you know, they're they're running on the rooftops and and he slips and he's hanging on to to basically the the drain. Yeah, what, what do you call it the the gutter? What do you call it the, the gutter? Yeah, uh, and uh, it's the the vertigo kicks in and the cop dies uh, trying to save him. Um, this sets the stage for Jimmy Stewart's guilt, um, for obviously the fear, uh, the, the terror that he experiences. But the fact that he never tells us how he got out of that situation, that he's still dangling there. Yeah. Like there is no conceivable way that you can escape that. That to me adds attention to the story, tension to the story from the get go. Um, he never, I never, he never quite escaped that dangling ledge. Like I don't know how he got out. Right. You know. Yeah. It's uh, that's interesting. You so that was probably a deliberate choice. I mean, I suppose you would think because I had actually I had that thought at the time, and I thought I guess we're supposed to assume that he just pulled himself up finally. I know. But the but whole point so, of his uh, <laughs> the whole point of his illness is that he gets dizzy, and so probably wouldn't be able to do that. Or maybe a yeah, different right. cop came down and helped him, or maybe right. they brought a net. And like how long would he have had to be up there? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so much so that I was tempted, which I don't think is true. This would be and it would be cheap. Tempted to think, you know, this this is all happening all as he's dangling from the ledge, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, I'm not tempted in that direction here. No, here no, I'm more I, like, I, it, no, I immediately dismiss that. That would add nothing to this film. <laughs> there, yeah, no, but yes, he was a total master at that. The obsession from the get-go makes Jimmy Stewart a horrible detective. <laughs> Like when he's following her, you you alluded to this. When he's following her, he's doing a terrible job at it. <laughs> like it's very clear that she has noticed him a few times. He he's he doesn't even leave a car in between Eliza. No. Eliza <laughs> had a trouble getting past this, and she didn't remember. She had seen it once when she was really much younger, but she didn't remember the twist. So yeah. it's like she just thinks he's really following her. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, she doesn't care that she knows that he's following her. So right. But yes, so it doesn't he's, a, matter. he's awful. And even when they're on deserted like roads going to the mission, it's just this one car. On <laughs> exactly. The green car um, right in front of him. And he's just completely, obviously following her. She keeps turning and turning. Somebody pointed out that they're always going downhill too. Yeah. Um, like a spiral. The, yeah. It was actually unsettling the way that that scene is cut when he's following her. Yeah. It's like he... He keeps turning and it is a spiral, right? That's right. I hadn't really thought about that because you don't see you all you see is right before the turns. Yeah. Right before the turns. Next cut right before the turns. You get no sense of continuity in the chase or in the in the falling. I have to I have a question about the hotel. Uh yeah, the, where I she to, so there's I, this scene where it's she's in there and he's seeing her in there, and then he goes and talks to the receptionist 
and the receptionist says she hasn't been in today and then goes up and checks her room and she's not there. Yeah. So I don't understand that on a number of nope, levels. I don't. Nope. Because I don't know. I like, had the same question. It's not even, it wouldn't even seem to be part of the plan that they would do that. Right? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. Um, but we never find out what, how she could have slipped through. I don't think and she would have paid off. why she would have wanted to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And no other I'm, point, like that makes it seem like she really is like a ghost. Yeah, she gets up to the window, opens it, clearly is looking at him. Yeah. I think, you know, he turns away in his really bad following way, like as somehow to, to avoid notice, but he's clearly stalking her. I don't know if this is, if we're supposed to interpret this as, you know, after she dies and he keeps seeing her everywhere, even though it's not really her. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if we're supposed to take it as some trick that Jimmy Stewart's mind, you know, he's he's actually going a little bit crazy. Um, or maybe that their goal is to make him really at this moment think it might be a ghost. Is that the yeah. idea? Because he does sort of the Gavin Elster at the hearing where the judge just lays into Jimmy Stewart just almost comically. Oh, man. Uh, the we're not here we're not here to blame the guy who clearly let someone die <laughs> right. uh, the law doesn't say anything about not acting unfortunately uh, yeah. but yeah gavin elster says we know who really killed her so is the idea that jimmy stewart is supposed to think that there really was kind of an apparition involved in i this? think that i think so i mean it's it's they play up the the possession aspect so strongly but at, that it seems like that but at no point was it suggested that it could actually make her disappear, like the actual <laughs> well, person, Madeline, a... disappear, <laughs> right, or right. appear, right? Like it only makes sense as a as a mentally unstable story, not yeah. as an actual poltergeist. Um, I don't know. I mean, so so you know, maybe he's gaslighting us. You know, yeah. I, I, I I'm not I'm not exactly sure what what's. Supposed I meant to, happen. to look up if there was any discussion of that. Um, so here, there are a couple of things about this movie that actually bother me. Um, one is a general complaint about movies of this sort and from this time period. And that is that, are we really to believe that people fall in love that quickly? Like that they really, and this is actually a, almost a trope in film noir, like, uh, you know, women fall in love with, with the, the male protagonist so quickly. Like there's just... Sometimes, there's no I mean, shot. but... but- it's often that, uh, as in this case, a ruse, right? Yeah, but I actually think sh- she even states, like, I genuinely had feelings for you. But only like, over the course of their... Uh, but I think she's referring to her her character as Madeline actually yeah, fell in love right, with Jimmy yeah. Stewart, right? Yeah. And and he falls in love with her, and some some genuine feeling is... is I think supposed to be inferred by the audience, but, but I find that so, so unrealistic. Like they don't even fall in love after years. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, yeah, I guess uh, some, as somebody, you know, I've been off the market for quite a long time, but I remember in my younger days, I could get pretty, inf- I could certainly get very infatuated with someone very quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. That doesn't surprise me too much. Yeah. And then the movies, yes, it seems quicker, and it seems like a, you know, like a like a. Yeah. Bolt. I'm like, what was it about Jimmy Stewart that she found so attractive? Like from the book. Well, that's separate. <laughs> it's a separate. <laughs> issue. Um, 
here's another answer to your question about falling in love so easily. It's Jimmy Stewart's character is kind of interesting. It's not something I've seen discussed that much, but he's a man of independent means. He's a man of independent <laughs> means and really no job. Like, <laughs> yeah. So he has nothing to do. And I think that's kind of important to his character, his obsessions, the way he'll fall in love, the way he'll. And I thought that 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 was kind of as, you know, as someone who has had periods of time where I've had also not that much to do and <laughs> spent a lot of time wandering around cities, including San Francisco, um, <laughs> like that, I thought it captured that feeling you sometimes get when the the aimlessness is really a problem. Like it's a problem right. for your emotional state. This is his mind is looking for something to do and it falls into this obsession. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think if he had had something that he was focused on and that that was, that was important to him and was a part of his identity, um, then maybe some of, I think, you know, that's really good, interesting character work there. I think then maybe this couldn't happen. To, yeah. It could only happen to a person uh, as aimless as Jimmy Stewart is at that time, right? And I, so I take it we're we're supposed to believe that he comes from money, probably. Yeah. Um, that's why he's independent means because certainly he hasn't created his own wealth. Um, and you know, I kind of read into this like he's not a strong man in in no. in any way, right? He's He's broken by the traumatic experience of uh, uh, he's doesn't even seem strong in that moment when he's when he's dangling from the ledge. Um, and he seems like probably Hitchcock had an overbearing mother in mind for his character. Yes. Right. Although there's not even a, any mention of his family at any not point. At all, right? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that 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 makes sense that that um, he's. He, he does capture this this what do you do when you don't have to do anything and they like and every and the other people you know uh they have jobs they have work that you know she, barbara bel gettys is always working she's whenever yeah. he he drops by her house and she loves him so it's not like but you know like he he's just wandering around the city even then looking for somebody <laughs> to talk to looking for yeah. and even judy she has a job that and and he says you know take the take the day off tomorrow spend the day with me she's like i, I gotta go to work <laughs> yeah. he never has to go you're not living in reality dude <laughs> yeah. yeah i think the the weakest piece of acting in the movie is when uh jimmy stewart is in midge's apartment and he's he's telling her about his his theory about how he's going to get over his acrophobia and he climbs up on the ladder and he sees he, he stupidly put the ladder too close to the window and he looks down his fainting <laughs> yes is the most affected like weird bad like he you know it looks like a, a stereotypical woman from the south who passes out <laughs> and also yeah and at sim simultaneously which i think captures his performance vulnerable but also creepy <laughs> vulnerable creepy and and a weak kind and of weak person. yes yeah yeah um yeah, kind of, uh, uh, the strongest that he gets is at his ultimate creepiness is when he's getting yes, mad. Exactly when he's getting mad for her not for for Judy not doing everything, and that that to me is testament to Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, like I, he's 
he's so likable as a as a person and in his roles that for him to be scary uh took a lot I mean. yeah and then when he and he's just crazed uh, yeah. in, in the height of him dressing her up and then of course at the bell tower he's crazed but that's when he finds out and so he has maybe more of an excuse to be crazed at that point but before then it's just yeah and and, and again watch it it's really interesting to watch rewatch it because um it you really get a sense of the seeds of his obsessiveness it is clear in his performance throughout and right. that it's not something you might notice on the first go around, especially right. given that it's Jimmy Stewart and we have our preconceptions about Jimmy Stewart right. that, that Hitchcock will cert- certainly knows about. And yeah. Right. I, I don't know if you have much else to say, but what I wanted to ask you what I assume that you think this is a great movie. Um, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I it's do, one of I, my all time favorites, but it's, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. I have no problem with, it being considered the greatest there there is kind of a sense in which this is a certain kind of cinema at its peak yeah um so i was going to ask you what makes it great and i have some thoughts on this but i because i don't think that the story or the acting or the writing or any of those things are enough to make this a great movie i i'd agree with that yeah. I, I would say what makes it great, this is going to sound cl- cliched, but how it, every aspect of it fits together perfectly, masterfully, uh, uh, as a kind of a singular vision. The music, an obsessive. Uh, yeah, an obsessed, obsessive singular yeah. vision that, yes, mirrors and reflects the themes of the, the, the story itself and the movie itself. Um but yeah, the way the production design, the colors, the music, the performances, the even some of the writing, I think, um, and Hitchcock is very involved in the, the screenwriting process, although he's never listed as a screenwriter, I, it all comes together in, that's right. what I mean in this way that it, it just seems like the peak of a certain kind of cinema. Right. This is, you know, and I, I can see why probably filmmakers put this as a list. I mean, this is filmmaking. Yes. The, the greatness here is in the filmmaking. Uh, you know, if you gave me the script, I think there are a lot of forgettable movies that have that have stories that are along the lines of this. Yeah. Um, and Hitchcock turned it into a great movie by making a great film. I don't know. If that what do you sense, think? Right? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a great movie, but I think it is. It is great because it's Hitchcock flexing, yeah, flexing his great movie making skills. Um, Hitchcock, even in this movie, you know his his use of color is just obviously brilliant. His there are beautiful shots in this movie that I don't associate so much with Hitchcock. And I'm far from an expert, but I really do like Hitchcock. I never really think of Hitchcock as making beautiful movies. Right. But I think this movie is beautiful. I think he uses San Francisco as a landscape in one of the best ways. San Francisco is sort of a favorite of movies and TV shows, but, but I think he, he makes San Francisco come alive. It's a good um, marriage, him and San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, and, and apparent- that whole area, Northern California. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, so I agree with, like, I hadn't thought to put it that way, but the way it all comes together makes it great, despite what I think, if I if I was aware of just the storyline, I'd be like, eh, 
That's interesting. But it's, you know, the Hitchcock's famously has MacGuffins where plot is really an excuse to have great scenes and great visuals. Um, I would say among Hitchcock plots, this is one of the better ones, you know. Uh, yeah. The MacGuffin is not necessarily just a MacGuffin. It is it, it is tied into the themes and the look and the visual aspects of it. And it's but it's yeah it's it's almost not a MacGuffin. It's just kind of an intri- It's kind of a cool twisty plot. You know. Yeah. It's like yeah. you said. It's nothing special. It's like a film noir plot, and that that's sort of what I was referring yeah. to. It's kind of twisty and turny, and there is a mystery, and it's solved. But it it is only interesting in in well sorry only great in hitchcock making the psychological tension i mean i remember really liking it as a kid and taking it took me time to like rear window because i was like this is just like you you know that he's the killer and turns out he is the killer and (laughs) like (laughs) what's the point of this movie like exactly um and now, but it is that thing. It is that ability of Hitchcock to give us human tension, like um, yeah. that makes Rear Window good, but that makes this plot turn into a good, a great movie. Yeah. That that he adds that that sort of dimension of human psychology to it. I'd like to go back to Rear Window. It's been a while. I I don't have that initial reaction anymore, but it's still been a long time since I've seen it. Maybe yeah. we can because uh, yeah. some people like think of that as the ultimate Hitchcock movie. And not this one. Yeah, uh, is this your favorite uh, Hitchcock movie? I I I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think it's definitely Hitchcock at his peak filmmaking. But if I had to watch a Hitchcock movie, it might be Rear Window or North by Northwest. Yeah, or Psycho. Honestly, Psycho, I think Psycho yeah. is brilliant. <laughs> to me, there's a clear top three. It's Psycho, Vertigo, and I and and I don't know. This may be a little more idiosyncratic, but Shadow of a Doubt. I love Shadow of a Doubt. I think it's peak yeah, what, early Hitchcock. Yeah, it's the one with the girl and her uncle Charlie, and the girl is also named Charlie. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's Joseph Cotton, and I just. I love that movie. Yeah, Psycho is so fucking good. It's it's so it's so good. It's hard to tease apart Psycho from its influence. Um, all right. Well, that was us discussing Vertigo. Uh, join us next time on Very Bad Wizard.